I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Well, 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 what do you know? Ladies and gentlemen, friends, neighbors, supporters, and haters, it is this week in social justice. Because we're live, nobody's tuned in yet. And so I'm introducing to nobody, unless you're listening on the podcast feed. This is the, not the simulcast. What, what is this? If we take a, a recording of a video production and then you're hearing the audio version of it, what is that called? You're the tech guy, man. Yeah, I don't know. I would come to, come to with all these problems. Well, listen, what, <laughs> what you're watching, if you're watching the replay. You know that term. That's a possibility. This is This Week in Social Justice, presented by the Newsbeat Podcast. My name is Manny Faces, uh, and I am the editor, the editor, the co-producer, uh, the audio editor, and the host of the Newsbeat Podcast. But collectively, we are the hosts of This Week in Social Justice. I'm joined, as always, by the managing editor of both of those properties, Mr. Rashed Mian, and the editor-in-chief of both of those properties, Mr. Christopher Tawarski. Gentlemen, good evening. What up, what up? Happy Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco right. de Mayo. I am uh, stereotypically drinking a margarita, but I, I have a I Salute, my friend. Salute, mi amigo. However, I have a pass. Oh, there you go, Chris. Get it in there. Toast it up. You got the brown stuff. Now, I have my, a pass. My Albanian stein. Because (laughs) if you you follow us on the social medias uh, at U.S. Newsbeat, either on Twitter or on Facebook or on Twitch, even U.S. Newsbeat, you will see that we said today specifically that uh, there's a required listening. It's an episode of Newsbeat that we released today that you're required to listen to before you're allowed to drink and partake in any Cinco de Mayo celebrations. Now we are wholeheartedly in favor of celebrating Cinco de Mayo. However, we need you to know what it is that we're celebrating. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that later in this episode. And if you know our podcast, maybe you listened already, you already got a taste of it. Uh, So I'm okay. I feel confident that I can drink a margarita uh, respectfully and authentically. We'll see. So you're not even saying that viewers had to do the homework. You're basically talking about everybody, the entire country. Absolutely. It is required. Yeah, it's required. Uh, we're working on making it sort of, you know how you need a vaccine passport? We're going to have to have a, a Newsbeat Cinco de Mayo passport. I think it's uh, I think it's only fair. So that being said, we'll talk about that. We'll circle back to that and we will let you know uh, a little bit more about the whole Cinco de Mayo thing. Newsbeat style. Uh, l- yes. Let me remind viewers that uh, we are a podcast as well as this live stream video. Uh, shenanigans that go on every Wednesday live, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can find us at Newsbeat, two words, one love, wherever you find podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Joe's Podcast Shack, uh, the guy who sells DVDs, uh, you know, to the to the barbershop. CD DVDs? Yeah, he also has our podcast. <laughs> yeah, two for five, three for ten. Uh, so you, you can find us there. That's more than we're charging. I know that's Stuff really great. Like that. cut. Well, bootleggers, man, that's how it goes. Uh, so please do that. We also have our new uh, installment of, of our podcast, not only the full deep dive social justice investigations, basically, are these 
documentaries that we put together that mix hard hitting social justice journalism with uh, music and very often original lyrical contributions from brilliant hip hop artists. Uh, it's like Democracy Now! and Black Thought had a podcast baby. It's uh, what we do is amazing. It's award winning. We're geniuses and it sounds great. Uh, we will show you. A, uh, we'll play a couple of clips later on as we get uh, later into the show. If you've never heard it and, and just stumbled up upon our video show. But this is this week in social justice where we recap some of the important things happening. Uh, very much focused on the things that don't quite get enough attention in mainstream media. Uh, so we'll be talking about that today. In fact, we have a guest later this episode in the second half of the show. Uh, you guys, someone want to introduce what we're going to have on this uh, great episode? Yeah, I mean, we're we're honored to uh, have uh, Samuel J. Uh, Redmond join us, who's a professor of history at Wait, uh, Redman? Redman is going to be on the show. Yeah, he's going to be performing. Yeah, he's going to be performing at the at the end. He's going to be talking about bones. He's going to be. Oh, oh, Samuel J. Red. Oh, never mind. Go ahead, please continue. I just want to tell the audience that let them know that we don't rehearse these these little comedy skits here. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> Professor Redmond's going to be joining us. He's a um, professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He has two books out. Uh, he's an expert on the stolen collections of bones and other human remains um, that are hoarded uh, within the U.S. Uh, museum system, private collections medical institutes and uh, the vast majority of these come from enslaved, enslaved folk, uh, indigenous right. peoples, African-Americans, wow. the poor. I mean, he's going to break that all, all down for us. Um, but just in context, it's important we had him because we're also going to discuss a little bit about the May 13th, 1985 bombing of a house of activists in Philadelphia and among those killed, there were 11 people killed in that. Five were children. And it just broke this past week that the actual bones of a 14-year-old girl is being stored and used by Princeton University and the University of Pennsylvania in online classes. And as basically as props, teaching props. So that just broke this week. So we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in our next segment. Uh, but yeah, Samuel J. Redmond going to come in and break down that this is not a one off, I, I guess, is what's happening here. This is sort of a, a thing. And I didn't know it was a thing. And as very often, you know, we talk about things on this show, a lot of people don't know. That it's a thing. Uh, please leave comments and uh, wave at us and say nice things about us in the comments section of wherever you're watching us, whether it be uh, YouTube or Twitch or uh, the other place, Facebook. Uh, we will uh, put your comments on the screen. Uh, if you have questions for the guests or for us about the issues we're talking about, you want to get to know a little bit more, uh, do uh, please uh, contribute in the comment section. We want this to be interactive and full of love. So that being said, let us make our move to our next segment. This is what we call our news beat bites. So I'll go first. And I'm, just, I'm just juggling a little bit here. My news beat bite. I found this today. Just really uh, interestingly off. 
Um, we talk about social justice. We talk about all the matter of fact, a couple of shows ago, we talked about police stops as being a precursor to a lot of ugly, nasty things that happen that end up being a violation of rights, particularly of uh, uh, persons of color uh, and all the uh, negative things that are happening uh, in the, uh, you know, in, in the world of social justice that we focus on all too often uh, start with police stops. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know how uh, uh, tense those moments can be for anybody, uh, but particularly, obviously, uh, for uh, our friends and neighbors and brethren and sister and uh, communities of color. So I noticed this today that uh, there's apparently if you have an iPhone, there's a thing called shortcuts. I don't have I actually have a trapel. I have, an, I have a trap iPhone that I use just for Clubhouse. Um, uh, but I have, so I have a, an iPhone just for that purpose. I'm not really versed. I'm a, I'm a Google guy, uh, Android, but apparently you can do these things called shortcuts and whatever. And someone's developed a shortcut, uh, called I'm getting pulled over. And what it does is, uh, you activate the shortcut. It'll turn on your do not disturb. It'll send your location to designated contacts and it'll start recording video. And obviously we know how important it's been, uh, certainly in the wake of the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, but certainly uh, some of the other travesties that we've seen um, as much as we don't want them played and played and played and replayed in the media ad nauseum, how triggering that could be, how damaging that could be to the psyche of Americans, particularly Americans facing these injustices. uh, It is important that these things are documented uh, for any chance of legal, you know, of any kind of justice on a legal sense. So I thought this was fascinating. It sort of reminds me of cop watch the organization out here in New York city, that teaches folks how to record police interactions, uh, you know, teaches you about your rights uh, to do so, teaches you about best practices. There's a couple of apps that uh, we've seen activists use, right, that um, like will automatically upload to the cloud in case your phone gets taken. Rashad, you know what I'm talking about? I'm actually not aware of that one, no. Yeah, I thought, there was a, I, I thought we might have discussed in the past. Um, anyway, there's apps that can help with this sort of thing, and I think this Do Not, Distor- uh, do not Disturb Siri app uh, uh, shortcut uh, is the same thing. So I don't know exactly where you can get it. This was on businessinsider.com, uh, but I know that you can find it. It was created by Arizona resident Robert Peterson. He created his own third-party shortcut, initially known as police, and now known as I'm getting pulled over. Uh, I think it's brilliant. I think it's a great way to kind of, you know, I'm a hip-hop guy, so I like to remix technology, and I think it's a great application. Uh, so check out series I'm getting pulled over shortcut it'll operate it'll turn on your do not disturb it'll give your location to designated contacts and it'll automatically start recording video i thought it was brilliant and that was my news bite for the day it would be interesting yeah that's amazing i mean you you mentioned a couple episodes ago the uh the original police report that came out of the george floyd killing and obviously we would have never known this would this happen without without video right so i think the original report said he died of like a medical inter emergency yeah, with police both <laughs> right, so. yeah. yeah. they completely right. lied on the report and then the video came out and they were like oh right what we, what we meant to say is is we killed them my bad uh let's maybe just you know redo that um shouts to the police falsifying records it happens uh, shouts yeah. to my man shouts to my man coleman my brother uh anyway let's go on who's next on the news bite tip I think I'm going to hit it right on. We're skipping around this time. All right. So, so this is a story that I sort of been following 
uh, after Joe Biden was inaugurated, because I think it's something that people were passionate about when Trump was uh, elected because of his sort of animus toward Muslims um, and banning them from coming into the country. So that created this whole sort of refugee crisis in America. We saw what happened at the airports when they immediately banned people from from coming to the country, people who are basically on planes right. on the way here. So um, on the campaign, Biden had said he was going to increase the number of refugees coming to the United States. And that was obviously, it was basically just like the status quo prior to, to Trump because Trump lowered it to historic lows. I think the number of people who were allowed to come to the country was 15,000, which is minuscule. When you think about um, all the refugees that are out there um, and so Biden came to office and people were optimistic and he sent his um, staff, um, including the secretary of state to Congress and told them that he was going to increase it. And that was last month. And then a few weeks later, they changed their minds and said, you know what, we're going to keep it at Trump levels. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure some people may have heard of it, but like the, to me, I, it's, it was sort of exasperating. I couldn't believe that a democratic president was saying, we're going to keep refugee admissions to Trump levels. Um, 15,000 is like, the, like, there's probably 15,000 within like five square blocks of me or something. You know, it's, it's insane when you're thinking about refugees. Right. Right. Um, So this week it finally came out that after an uproar uh, bipartisan, but also a lot of people on the progressive end of the spectrum um, were outraged. So Biden is increasing it to 62,000 for this fiscal year. And I think, and then he's going to, increase it again. So that's huge news. Um, and it's significant because, like I said, of these, these were people, there was hundreds of people, hundreds of planes that were people at plane tickets ready to come here. And suddenly they were grounded uh, by Biden. Uh, for, and then the explanation coming out of the White House was, you know, um, we can't do it. Everybody is busy with managing the southern border. But that wasn't really true either because those two things are separate. These people had already been vetted. And vetting for refugee status is extremely, uh, you know, uh, stringent. It's hard to get here because of all the the layers you have to go through. So, the, yeah, people had gone through this process. Thousands of people had gone through this process, approved and everything, had plane tickets, and were literally grounded. It wasn't the chaos that we saw at JFK and other airports during the right. Muslim ban, uh, but it was significant. And I, I just want people to to think about these things because obviously we got a lot going on and I think coronavirus and the vaccine rollout has dominated um, most things. And obviously we had the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, so there's a lot of things going on and, and things slip through, things slip through the cracks. So um, I think it's also always important for us to, for, for a powerful country like this to, to think about, um, you know, the role we play on the, in the, you know, the global world. So um, I, I think it's, it's huge that we, we, focus on on what Biden is doing there. Um, And then we also have uh, yesterday was World Press Freedoms Day. So this is something that um, if you guys follow Newsbeat, we're passionate about. We've done several episodes on attacks on free press uh, in this country, especially under the former president, uh, Barack Obama, his successor, Donald Trump. And uh, Joe Biden hasn't yet had his turn to uh, sort of continue that trample, onslaught trample on the rights um, of the press. Yes. But although he might be on the periphery, he might say, he might say, say great things. They might send out uh, nice tweets, but um, uh, 
let's, I want people to focus on World Press Freedom Days because uh, a report just came out and they do this every year where they rank all the countries in terms of their press freedoms. And the United States was up one spot uh, to 44. So that's 44. So the country, the bastion of of freedom, uh, the First Amendment, the home of press freedoms is 44th in the entire world uh, in this ranking, which is incredible. And we're above Congo. We're above there. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that sort of Nordic countries, which typically come out up to on top, came out on top again, the Nordic countries um, love journalists apparently, but we don't. Uh, one of the reasons we are so low is yep. that if you remember during the protests last year, there was unprecedented number of assaults on journalists and arrests on journalists throughout right. the country. And there was um, the Press Freedom Tracker, which is an arm of the uh, Press Freedom Foundation, documented dozens and dozens of assaults. And they issued a report. Yeah, they had 416 attacks on journalists in 2020. And there's already 37 in 2021, which is incredible to me because we don't really have this, um, the, the protests at the scale that we saw uh, last year yet. So right. it's incredible. Uh, the same group, Press Freedom Tracker, issued a report saying uh, press freedoms were, uh, are in crisis. And that was during the, the racial injustice protests. Um, so it's incredible. And just one last thing to, to yeah. you know, um, Julian Assange, who was indicted by the Trump administration, um, who is a publisher. And it's, it, it's incredibly significant that he's being indicted. Um, Joe Biden's administration seems to be um, continuing that case. They're not going to drop it, it seems. So that's another important thing to focus on. And just the last thing that I have. Um, I was just, before I, yeah, before we go off press freedoms, I just want to say, you know, we've talked about this on a couple of episodes already. Remember the legislation they're trying to put in to limit the press to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, to uh, limit protest. They're going after these rights, not just so that they could outright blatantly have to smash your head in, uh, you know, in the middle of a protest, but that you can't even be at a protest or you or you're going to get like some kind of crazy additional uh, penalties if you're arrested during a protest. And that would go to journalists get arrested all the time. Right. So they're trying to smash all this legislation out that'll really hinder the rights that we're talking about, the right to assembly, the right to protest, the right to uh, for the free for free press. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you know, Chris has been out there. You see what you know, us covering protests, you know what it's like. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Rashad, I, I, you know, this is exactly what these news bites are made, are made for. You know, um, as you mentioned, we've covered this many, many, many times, and it's an ongoing assault. You know, it, it seems to not matter whose administration it's under. You had Obama prosecuting more, uh, you know, going after journalists and, and uh, prosecuting more whistleblowers, leaking information to journalists uh, under the use of the Espionage Act. Than every other president combined, you know, and, and he was a Democrat, obviously. Um, and, you know, you have these assaults, uh, you know, like you're saying, it's just this constant um, erosion, or at least trying to get rid of this stuff. And, and you know, nonprofits like this, US, pre- U.S. Freedom Tracker, and, you know, it's just critical to keeping an eye on this and, and uh, keeping everyone informed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's amazing because we saw some of these attacks happen on live TV if you're watching the protests, which is outrageous. And look, I'm not going to connect the two, but you had a president at the time who was obviously open about his disdain for journalists. Um, right. And then, you know, the police just openly attacking them. Like it, it, you just had a sense that they felt empowered, um, unfortunately. 
you know, right. to do these kind of things because um, that erosion that Chris is talking about, once you erode that trust in an institution through whether you're arresting journalists or their sources or things like this, it's, it's definitely um, uh, terrifying. So, and just the, the last thing that I have for people. Give me your last bite. Yep. The last thing I have for people just yeah, on Mother's Day, when you're thinking about, you know, everybody um, also think about the thousands and thousands of women who are incarcerated um, in America um, uh, who have their own families, many of them are single parents um, um, and will be spending uh, Mother's Day in prison, uh, most for nonviolent crimes. And it's important that we think about that because the number of women who have been who are incarcerated in the United States has jumped, I think, 16 times since the 1970s. So it, was, it wasn't always like this. It was, the, the numbers were tiny, um, and now they're huge. So think about those people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. We've talked about, obviously, uh, the women uh, women in prison in our Say Her Name episode, um, uh, Abused and Alone, uh, the Me Too movement behind bars, uh, very often uh, not to take away from, obviously, the uh, incredible disparity with men, uh, particularly uh, from our communities of color, but Women get a very, very bad deal when it comes to prison. Chris, your news bites, sure. Your, your news beat news bites. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to probably breeze through these because I really want to get to some of the move stuff. But um, yes. this and was I, just, I, I came across this any minute. Yes. Yeah, I just, I just came across this story and I just thought it was, uh, you know, um, horrifying. But um, the court did the right thing. An appellate court uh, recently ruled and is is doubling the amount of money uh, that this this restaurant owner uh, owes this worker. So he had a worker who was learning challenged um, and basically forced him to work in his kitchen for five years without any pay. Uh, Constantly berated him with racial slurs, uh, I think you know, dipped utensils in, in a hot grease and burned him. And, uh, you know, this guy was afraid for his life. I mean, it's just like, you see that black man enslaved, you know, and it's just, it just, I, don't know. <laughs> I was about to say like, in 2021, this is an actual headline. This is a real, this is a real, this is not the onion hashtag, not the onion. Like this is a real headline in 2021. It's, it's absurd. You know, um, it, it just speaks to, I am a little confused because I heard, a couple of politicians tell me that like there's, there's no racism in America. So I'm confused, but go ahead, please. I digress. I mean, yeah. I mean, it also just shows, you know, our, our parent company, Mori creative uh, services is a partner founder of uh, this incredible site, uh, inclusion hub. And right. uh, we ask everyone, check it out, but it, it's basically a massive resource database uh, to, uh, to shine a light on ways that we can increase accessibility and inclusion for disabled folks. And, you know, in this story here, you had a, a learning disabled person who was basically brutalized for five years. I mean, what do we, uh, and he's serving 10 years in prison, in prison for this. Has uh, serving yeah. 10 years in prison and now double restitution. I'm not quite sure where the money's going to come from, yeah. but hopefully exactly. it's uh, just justice uh, monetarily. And um, yeah, um, and just real quick, this, the second uh, the second little bit is the is the Freeze Art Fair. It's an annual art fair in New York. It's a big deal, and yep. this year they they're they're uh, they're having a massive uh, uh, tribute to uh, this professor at Harvard um, 
Professor Sarah Elizabeth Lewis at Harvard, who has this um, incredible program there that focus, it's called Vision and Justice, and we're going to include the links uh, on yep. all our, our social here, but it, it's, it's utilizing art and, and taking art and analyzing it to find out how it can be used toward social justice ends. That's just right. one of the things that it is. But, you know, it's just this power of art to change people's perspective yeah. on things and use it as a force for oh. good. Um, so it's, uh, you know, there's some online, there's some online exhibits. There's over 50, I think, museums participating in this. And the last thing I wanted to do was just a quick update on that, uh, that terrorizing, uh, uh, terrifying ro robot dog that we saw deployed. <laughs> oh, the robot dog. Yes. We covered that yeah. a couple of weeks ago. The, the, uh, NYPD had set this thing loose. Uh, they were using it in, uh, different, uh, Housing I projects. I, I gotta hear the quote. I gotta hear the lady. I got. I gotta hear. Where was it? Um, oh. Oh, that's R two D two. I mean, you see that thing coming into your, into your housing, you know, in, into your apartment building. And the update is that they killed it. They put the dog down. <laughs> they put the robot dog down. And, you know, as we, as we spoke, it's just, you know, the thing was, I think $90,000. I, I think we said 75 at the time. I think it turns out it's like $92,000 yeah. over militarization of the police. They use it, you know, and they're obviously they're only testing it on black and brown communities. It's, you know, so, so there was a lot of backlash and they finally, they say they pulled it, right. but. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, we will get into the next topic and then guest. Uh, once again, our esteemed uh, guest is, is waiting in the wings. We're going to get in. We're going to set that up in one second. Uh, thank you for the news beat news bites. Uh, those were our, I got to do it. News beat bites. Now I want to real quick. Uh, we do want to say that because we want to remind people who are watching us and viewing us that don't know about the podcast. We do just want to drop right quick. When you talk about the infusion of art for social justice, we do that. And we do that with hip hop. That's kind of our thing. So you might say, why does this thing say a splash of hip hop when we talk about what we do? And, and you'll want to know that this is an excerpt from a full episode of news beat, the real uh, granddaddy of all our episodes format wise. Uh, this is what we do. This is the Newsbeat podcast. This is this week of social justice, but this is also what we do. So if you're watching, please do consider following us on the on the podcast tip because we do bring social justice issues to light in a very compelling and unique and award winning way. Uh, this is our current full length episode, although we have a new episode that's posted just today. We'll talk about that later. Uh, it has something to do with this. Uh, but for now, please just give a sample. Let us give you a sample of the news beat podcast. What we do, this is our current episode called justice severed, uh, guilty, plead guilty uh, or else plead guilty or else, which looks at the scourge of forcing guilty pleas among people. Again, primarily young people of color, uh, even when they might be innocent, uh, but forcing these guilty pleas, so that the entire criminal justice system, A, operates like it's designed to, and B, doesn't crumble. Because if everyone went to trial, it'd be chaos. This is a sample from our episode. Check it out, y'all. So plea bargaining is very much now the norm 
It's the way things are done. It's the bread and butter of the criminal justice system. Lawyer in my ear like Diddy, take that, take that Shiny suit face, thought he was trying to bring Mace back Can't believe he do me like this, where the faith at? All I'ma say is in a way it's like the cheesecake path Which is to say that it's their bread and butter huh. Criminal justice system doesn't function Unless adults and young kids get pressured and rushed into this disgusting conundrum Unjust but it's hiding now, thinking that we have a right to trial They like to smile, say you think about your wife and child While systemic, if you fight it, get a harsher sentence Shark infested, every outcome break apart defendants Carcinogenic, that's exactly how it was intended Tried to fight it, but the Supreme Court upheld it Hold them consent, the whole thing is a mockery Now I understand why we look down at coppin' please. So yeah, one time for your mind uh, Shouts to SK, Silent Night, our artist in residence You heard a little snippet of the interview and then it went into the verse But the, the entire episode is uh, in-depth interviews with these experts uh, analysts and people who are affected by injustice, and we disperse those episodes with original lyrical contributions by our brilliant artist friends. Uh, that's the Newsbeat Podcast, a little bit of taste of what we do. Uh, we're the best podcast in the world, so now you know. Yeah. Next. So let's go. Yeah. You're- so sorry, I was excited. Yeah. Like, so I- so uh, before before we welcome uh, Professor Redman, I just. We we just got to give some critical context here about one of the reasons why why we we have him here and we're so lucky to have him. Um, if we could just pull up that that first story. Basically, let, next week is the anniversary uh, on May thirteenth, nineteen eighty five. It's uh, there was a poll taken. Most of the country really doesn't know about this, but a row house in Philadelphia was bombed. Bombs were dropped off a police helicopter on top of a house full of people. The siege actually, it was, it was, it it almost took a full day. They, they closed, they shut off the water to the, to an entire block, an entire neighborhood. They shut off the power. They had uh, all the neighbors evacuate their homes. The, the police force was over 500 of them. They fired over 10,000 rounds into this house. Uh, to try to, to basically trying to get the people to come out is what they wanted. They, they wanted the, it, they wanted them to come out. The activist group was named Move, uh, all capital letters, and it's tough to describe them exactly. They didn't really fit into uh, any one sort of uh, classification. Um, I mean, they were sort of Black liberation, but they were also animal rights. They were anti-tech. Uh, they all ate raw food. They were very much into nature. I mean, they would protest outside zoos things like that. And just think about that though for a second. They dropped a bomb on a residential home in Philadelphia in 1985. It killed 11 people, six adults, five children were incinerated alive in this house. By the police. And Chris, wasn't this wasn't this sort of approved too by the mayor and the DA? The mayor, the mayor held back the fire department for an hour or two, or an hour or two is what I what I understand, from putting out the fire. He said, let it burn. He started off uh, the assault by the mayor on a bullhorn. Uh, I believe it was the mayor. It might have been the police commissioner. I believe it was the mayor, um, who was the first African American, I think, mayor of Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, by saying this is America 
and you have to abide by American laws. So as horrific as this is, and it, and it, it the fire raged and it destroyed as, as uh, Manny just showed over 60 homes leveled, destroyed, incinerated. So what just broke about this, I mean, and, and if this wasn't horrific enough, so remember I mentioned there were five children burned alive in this house. It just broke this week. And you could show the, the site that, 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 uh, that broke it. Um, it's a site called Billy Penn. They are a reader-generated uh, nonprofit newsroom. Uh, it's an incredible story. Um, the bones of one or two of these children, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old, both little girls, were taken and possessed by Princeton University and the University of Pennsylvania. And they were used as props in a forensic science class that, that, that uh, was, was, was done, was streamed. They used the children. I just want to make sure this sinks in because it's, they use the children's bones as a prop in a class. And the family wasn't even and aware, right? I think that's one the of the, family, the horrific the, things too, right? The, the, the family wasn't aware that there are still living family members, you know, and it's just, I don't know, you know, it's, you know, I'm sure. Uh, you, know, I, I, you got this clip from Democracy Now. You want to play it real quick and then we'll yeah. go to our guest. All right, this is something from Democracy Now. Talk about the, uh, I think, because they had something about the family in this clip, right? This is the clip of the, the professor at, at, at UPenn handling and using the bones as a prop. Democracy Now! obtained a copy from the Africa family. This is a clip. This is one of these cases where the material has some flesh on it, which I know is not uncommon, actually, in forensics and forensic anthropology. Uh, in this case, uh, there is some soft tissue, which is actually remaining, and the bones were actually burned as well. So it's got quite a complicated history. So I'll pick up just for a moment and show you that this is really the, the tissue which is present on the specimen. It's not uh, a lot, but uh, absolutely it's there. This is the tendon that goes to uh, rectus femoris. It's actually intact and it's there. The femur is. Um, I don't know how much of this we have, but well, it's, it's, I don't it's, know it's how much more I could take. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm done. Um, so anyway, this is this is critical content. I mean, this is this is uh, why we wanted Professor Redmond to come in um, yep. and, and discuss the larger context here, because as we learned, and, and you know, we're always learning when we're doing. When we're doing this, when we're doing the show, when we're doing the podcast, we're always learning. And, you know, you might have been to museums and thought, uh, oh, I, you see a skeleton or maybe you're a medical student and you see a skeleton, something. But, right. you know, the story behind what the hell is going on and what has been going on in the U.S. museum system regarding human remains is it, it, it is beyond words. Um, so with that. I'd like to welcome uh, Professor Redman onto the show. 
Professor, thank, thank you so you. much for having me. Thank you. We're honored to have you. Um, and yeah, I don't know uh, how long you were back there, but um, we just played uh, part of the the online class uh, where uh, young, uh, potentially tree Africa's remains were used as a teaching prop. Um, and so first, I just wanted to ask you your initial reactions when you first heard this story. Oh, wow. Well, um Part of uh, part of the difficulty in studying this history is that um, you're both continually shocked and appalled at, at the things you learn. Uh, and then, unfortunately, uh, I think much of what I'll unfortunately, you know, again, unfortunately say today is that this fits within a larger pattern of the last century or more of collecting and exhibiting and using these materials as teaching tools and uh, uh, for research very often without the permission of, uh, of course, the deceased uh, or their next of kin. So it is uh, something that was shocking and appalling to learn about the recency of this case. Uh, I studied history as, a, as an undergraduate. I, I grew up learning a lot about history, and it wasn't until graduate school when I was TAing for a, an African-American history course that I learned about the move bombing. Uh, so uh, I, was, I was shocked, but again, it, 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 it in some ways fits within these larger patterns of what we know about the practices of collecting and exhibiting human remains for uh, uh, museums especially. And, and Professor, on that point, how widespread is something like this? How, how many bones, how many sets of human remains are we talking about throughout the U.S. museum system? And uh, from what I understand, smaller institutions, medical practices, private collections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was, I think, uh, uh, one of the big things that I was trying to wrap my mind around when I started writing my book, Bone Rooms, was even just to understand it's a it's a pretty basic question, right? One would think how many bones uh, are in U.S. museums, and what's sort of shocking is that we don't really have a, a concrete answer to that question. One answer we do have is geared around a 1990 law that was passed called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, and between 1990 and about 1995, give or take a few years, museums were at least compelled to count the number of Native American remains they had and, and, and try to uh, uh, at least say on, on some level who they thought that these uh, uh, remains belonged to. So we know this is a shocking number, but we know there are at least half a million, 500,000 Native American remains in museums across the United States. Uh, again, what I think uh, Bone Rooms does that um, you know, so uh, you know, this is such a big, vast story that there there are a, a number of people who have written about this, but it was a story that, in my view, wasn't fully told. And one of the stories that not a lot of people I, I thought had really talked about and and thought about in much depth uh, were the number of African American remains that were uh, in in museums going back uh, all the way, dating back to the period of of enslavement, where. Uh, the, the taking of remains would have been part of a, a brutal system of, of chattel slavery, but then also during the Reconstruction era and well into the 20th century, black remains were, were exploited 
Um, you know, they say to never read the YouTube comments, which is usually a, a good a good piece of advice. But uh, you played a, a piece of I was uh, recently appeared on Democracy Now and. One of the YouTube comments was, you know, we really we need to keep our eye on the ball and focus on this move case from 1985. And I understand that uh, that thrust and, and that desire to sort of keep the attention on, on this recent really gut wrenching and heartbreaking case. But I, I think what, what I'm supposed to do as a historian is remind people that the reason why these remains ended up there uh, and and often what would happen uh, is after a cold case file was concluded or um, uh, you know maybe a construction site uh, or the army corps of engineers would discover remains they would end up in museums and we need to talk and think about the fate of these remains not just when people discover that they are there because of an online course but we need to have a more robust national conversation about what even is in museum bone rooms, the place of African-American remains in that story, and what should be done with them. And, uh, Professor, so we also know about the, the Morton Crania collection at UPenn. We know that it features the stolen skulls of hundreds of African-Americans, poor and enslaved people. So can you talk a little bit about how this collection um, sort of exemplifies so-called um, ra uh, racial science or scientific race racism, a phrase that's used in, in the title of your book, and, and eugenics, um, once purported to demonstrate the inferiority of black and brown and indigenous folks. And what, um, So can you talk about that? And, and just can you tell us who Samuel Morton is? Sure. So Samuel George Morton was a collector, sort of a proto-scientist. He's sometimes been called a, a pseudo-scientist. Uh, because he used a lot of the language and principles and, and idea or, or ideas or at least the veneer of science to present uh, wrongheaded conclusions about the nature of, simply stated, the, the size and shape of our skull uh, and the relationship of uh, the size of our skull to things like not just intelligence, but also personality characteristics like uh, ingenuity and uh, creativity and, and things of that nature. Uh, so uh, he's sort of a bridge in some ways between this older form of phrenology where they really thought the bumps in your skull sort of suggested different things about you. And then later you get, you know, sort of the rise of eugenics. Uh, and, and you have figures uh, sort of bridging that gap uh, like Samuel George Morton. And what, what Morton does is he uh, sends out uh, a request for, for people to send him skulls. He collects some skulls himself, I believe, but he, he also, uh, uh, word gets out and uh, people start sending him skulls to uh, measure and uh, uh, publish the results in what were sort of rare books at the time, but really influential. And so Morton's work is used by a lot of really racist people, not just in his generation, but in the generation to follow. Uh, right around the time of the Civil War, when, of course, a lot of the stuff about uh, the nature of, of race and what should be done with uh, the, the freedmen after uh, the, the, the Civil War. So Morton's work figured in prominently to a lot of those debates in really unfortunate ways that that uh, upheld white, uh, visions of white supremacy and uh, really racist ideas. So that's where this idea of scientific racism comes in in that it upheld these really uh, racialist and racist ideas that connected things like intelligence to race. Um, but it also 
uh, establish this precedent for people to follow up on and not just collect a few hundred or a few thousand skulls, but many thousand skulls uh, to, to get to that much larger number later on. Let me add one more thing about Morton, though, that's kind of interesting, is that people have then gone back. And and one of the things that I'd like to to mention that's that's maybe interesting to your audience that's not talked about very often is that there have been a number of people who have looked at these materials for what we might think of as anti-racist reasons. So um, uh, so people have gone back and looked at some of Morton's original findings and used good science, I would argue, to debunk some of those original findings. So, uh, uh, you know, suggesting, right, that, you know, that the, the, the theories of race, actually, when we study them, they don't, they, they aren't upheld in the, the universe. But these folks in establishing these bone collections were virtually established, you know, virtually obsessed with establishing criteria around what race was. So, um, and there are other examples too, just really quickly, uh, W. Montague Cobb, who was a physician at Howard University, uh, used his knowledge of these types of collections and x-rays of Jesse Owens' legs after the 1936 Olympics to make arguments that his success, which a lot of people in the 1930s were just, were describing in really racial terms, uh, he instead said, no, Jesse Owens is just a great athlete. There's nothing racially specific mm. about his, wow. uh, his success. So while these collections have a really troubled and dark history, there are also, they're complicated. There are lots of ways yeah. to think about them and, and think about how they've been used. No, and, and thank you so much for adding that. You know, we're all about trying to illuminate, uh, you know, the nuanced stories that just don't get attention. And that, you know, I, 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 you know we ask everyone who's listening uh, and watching to, to check that stuff out. Um, I'd like to go back to what you mentioned, the 1990 uh, Act. And I've read, you know, the preface of Bone Rooms, your book, which we've been, you know, we're going to be sharing the links and, and your author page. And, and we, we, we recommend everyone reads the professor's books. Um, incredible detail. Horrifying. You sort, of, you sort of paint this portrait of this Lakota warrior, one of hundreds of thousands slain. And they, they kill uh, this, this, this native warrior. They then take the body, they mutilate it, they, they beat the hell out of it, they scalp it, they break, you know, they, they, they celebrate this. Then they bury it, only to be dug up about a week or two later. And then it ends up in this medical examiner's briefcase or box and he decides he's going to conduct experiments on it he's going to use it for infinity he's you know he's never this is um so the the act that was passed in 1990 in your opinion does it go far enough right and secondly you know does does something need to be passed that's more specific you know maybe mentioning african americans maybe mentioning specifically uh, enslaved people, poor people in your book, you talk about how they dig up these paupers' graves. Um, please. Well, th- first of all, thanks for asking that question um, because sometimes uh, I, I wonder if I'm not 
clear enough on this as uh, as a, a, a sort of argument. I I'm I'm deeply in favor of NAGPRA and the the folks who are doing really hard work uh, in NAGPRA offices who are in some ways understaffed and underfunded. Um, a lot of the onus uh, on the, the the repatriation law for to try to get ancestors to be returned home is on. Uh, the tribe to come up with the funding and the legal expertise and get through the bureaucratic paperwork. So in spirit, I do think that there should be a larger law that addresses African-American remains and the remains of others uh, who have been exploited in, in this way. But I think NAGPRA offers this pretty imperfect model and we maybe need to think bigger and larger and, and, and maybe have a more sweeping response to this as, as a problem. So I've seen some folks uh, who I think are, are very well-meaning in this debate call for uh, a, a NAGPRA for black American remains. And again, in spirit, I, I support that. But I think we've also learned a tremendous amount in the last 30 to 35 years and native tribes in particular have taught us a huge amount about how to work within uh, this law. So just for one quick example of that, there are tribes in Michigan, uh, you know, I think maybe a group of, of uh, five or six different uh, upper Midwestern communities that have come up with uh, like a, a guide, a free PDF handbook of how to work within the law, how to go through these various steps. And now tribal nations from across the country can, can utilize that and they say up front in the top of the document, we don't agree on everything. We don't have the same religious and spiritual practices, but we all agree that these ancestors should be brought home and returned to the ground. So on that sort of fundamental starting point, uh, they're, they're able to move forward. So I think if uh, there is a sort of an, an analogous law that were to be passed, my best advice would be to turn to the African-American community leaders, scientists, and uh, scholars who are already well-versed with this as a, as a topic for leadership. It should be more broad and sweeping as an issue to deal with this. Like you said at the top, with not just big museums like Penn and Harvard, which is what we're talking about now, but also small medical museums, private collections. Um, do we need to have a larger conversation about this? I think it's time that we do. Yeah. And uh, Professor, you know, obviously we have the Tree Africa case now that's gotten a lot of attention. Um, can you talk about some other examples um, that you've come across, um, you know, obviously uh, of people whose, um, you know, remains are being um, uh, sort of researched and tested or whatever they're doing to them? And can you also um, just talk about potentially how common it is for the families, uh, potential still living members of the family to not even know that they're, um, you know, that these human remains are in possession of somebody else. The, uh, wow, these are uh, great, really interesting questions. Um, I mean, one thing to say that I think is kind of uh, interesting is that probably, you know, probably some people are aware of the idea that when you go to a museum, you know, when you see a, a beetle on display at a museum, it usually means there are nine other or ten other beetles that uh, the museum has uh, behind the scenes on display. With human remains, what is sort of the situation that, that uh, has been historically and, and is true today is that 
Uh, museums are hesitant to display these things. Um, it, you know, there are uh, certainly counterexamples. I talk about many of them in my in my book, and um, people are maybe familiar with exhibits like Body Worlds or uh, copycat exhibits like Bodies that draw these massive crowds year after year. So there's sort of a tension in American society where we're mortified by remains on display in a museum and we're drawn to them. So firstly, mo uh, many people just don't know that these are there. Uh, for, for one thing. And a huge part of what's happened since 1990 is just putting these puzzle pieces back together. Uh, communities in Australia, in Canada, and across the United States uh, are, are looking to rectify the situation, at least begin to rectify it by finding museums, collections uh, where, where they've been dispersed. But there, there's certainly, well, I've talked about how there's a, a structural racism aspect of this. It's connected to colonialism military and westward expansion. There's also a level of randomness to this. Uh, people would be building a road in sort of a, you know, uh, a, a country road and they would discover a grave. Um, and, and you ask for specific examples, like one that comes to mind uh, early in my writing of this project, a medical doctor, I, I believe a US Army medical doctor who's stationed at a fort in the south uh, comes across a woman who is, who is quite young, I think, you know, in, in her late 30s, an, an African-American woman. And I believe this would have been like 1868. So this, is, this has been in my mind recently because a lot of our conversations around these remains are around people who encountered, in, you know, the, uh, uh, slavery, who were potentially enslaved. And this is sort of an interesting example to me because if she died in a farm field uh, just a few years after the Civil War, she probably, in, the, in a state like Mississippi, my guess is she spent her entire, most of her life as a, 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 an enslaved person. Um, so when we sort of think about the moral and ethical qualms around these, uh, these dark histories, shouldn't we acknowledge sort of the full picture of, of someone's life and, and history rather than sort of saying, well, if they, you know, if they were uh, brought to a museum before 1865, then that's one thing. And, and a little later on, that's another thing. And this uh, exploitation really uh, continued in, in many respects. We think of uh, the Tuskegee uh, uh, experiments and uh, Henrietta Lacks and, and the way her uh, biological data was utilized for, for many years. So this is in some real meaningful way part of this larger story about medicine and, and anthropology and science. Um, and it's, it's really time to have an honest conversation about this. And, and I love that. It, it fits perfectly into my next question, which is, in your expert opinion, solutions, right? So UPenn, UPenn, I think right after George Floyd sort of, you know, shut down uh, things, they moved some of the, some of the skulls that were stolen. They, 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 they put up this, this, uh, this, I was going to say heartfelt, but they put up an apology. Uh, you had Harvard come out, I think in January, uh, and state that they're going to have a board put together and they're going to try to figure out what to do. And they're going to, um, in my opinion, total opinion, obviously the first step is you need to return the bones. You need to bury the bones. You need to give them back if, they, if you can track down. And they should do everything in their power to track down uh, ancestors or family members now. I mean, with DNA testing that they have now and all this stuff, they should expend any expense to get that done. 
is an apology enough, in, a professor, in your opinion? And and what what needs to be done? Well, no, an apology is is not enough. I I do think that as as someone who's studied the last century or more of this as a, as an issue. It is pretty remarkable to see these public statements uh, coming out. And I know I, I recognize and understand why there's a great degree of, of skepticism. Uh, but I at least and, and everything that I hear uh, from my you know, many friends and colleagues in the museum world is, is that, you know, there's some, a generational shift. In, in thinking about these issues. And uh, there are also a lot of progressive people who are working from, from within museums. It's also the case that a lot of this has only really been compelled by the, the students and other protesters in, in Philadelphia, in, in the Princeton area and elsewhere who are raising their voices at a, at a really crucial moment uh, and, and responding to this in a, in a way that is honest an honest reflection of their uh, reaction to the the history and and the reality here, um, but I don't think it's enough. I think we need to have a broader conversation about what all this means. The whole goal in my writing this book was to try to expand this as a as a conversation that this uh, that you know we understand this sort of thinking like maybe there are a few archaeologists that went and collected uh, remains and. You know, maybe it's the story of Native American remains and, and only that. Um, this is this global project to try to understand uh, race and, and human history in ways that define who we are and who we think we are today. And, and it's a problem that we don't often think of, in part because so many of those remains are, are behind the scenes. Um, so it's awful to me that it's such a shocking moment that uh, and, and such an awful scenario that has compelled this conversation. But I am heartened by the idea that it's 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 forced the hands of some institutions to finally do something in response to this uh, a tragic story. Well, if you could please uh, tell the audience how they can find your books. Um, I know I think you have another one coming out. Yeah, I. I um, uh, you know, I have been chasing around a toddler during the uh, quarantine time, but it's also been a, a busy writing time. Uh, my uh, book, Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Prehistory in Museums, is available now uh, wherever good books are sold, but it's uh, with Harvard University Press. Uh, my next book is also with Harvard University Press uh, called Prophets and Ghosts, The Story of Salvage Anthropology. Uh, that tells this larger story of, of collecting not just remains, but also languages, uh, music and songs, uh, objects of all kinds, photographs, and, and many other uh, things. Uh, it, the following spring, I'll have another book coming out called The Museum in Crisis with uh, NYU Press. So I'm really uh, uh, looking forward to bringing those stories to the world and uh, really grateful for the time to, to speak to these uh, uh, stories today. Well, absolutely incredible work and obviously you know as i mentioned uh, before you came on you know we 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 learn about these things as we as we prepare for these shows and do these podcasts and um it's a blessing that we learned about your book and i think it is helping to to spark change so you know we we ask everyone you know we recommend everyone uh listening whether on the podcast or, or watching us now to, to check out those books we're going to share links to those books and we're also going to share your twitter twitter link and professor Thank you again for being on. Thank this. you.
I would just like to chime in uh, and just say that I was a little disappointed that Redman wasn't going to be on the show, uh, <laughs> but I'm actually uh, very happy that uh, that it was you. So thank you for your insight. We my, appreciate it. My students walk in. Professor, do you drop first? I don't, but I know my student. there have got to be a few students who are disappointed when they walk in on the first day, but uh, we welcome them, and I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for this program. You've redeemed yourself, sir. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> Appreciate you. <laughs> All right. Take care. There it is. Samuel J. Redmond, professor, uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Brilliant insight and truly uh, something you don't hear about every day. Wow. Great job, gentlemen. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, for sort of digging in and, you know, bringing uh, this one to I, our attention. It's unbelievable. I mean, like a different world out there. Yeah. When, I was, when I was preparing for this, uh, this show, I just wanted to take a second and... I think we already got there, but, you know, just for, for listeners to try to just close their eyes for a moment and, and think about, you know, someone that you care about, someone that you love and imagining or trying to imagine something as horrific, you know, as first of all, a bomb, you know, incinerating you and, 11, you know, 10 other family members alive. And then that you, that your loved one would end up in a freaking class, you know, treated as a toy, really. I mean, treated as, what do you want to call it? Like a ruler, a, a notebook, a, a dinosaur, right. you know, an, a, a fossil. Really as a prop. A, a prop, you know, um, yeah. and just try to like suck that in for a second. I know it's hard and I know it's insanely torturous, but that is what is going on here. Yep. Not only in the case yeah. of these hey, two hey, poor we- girls, but... I mean, yep. as he said, 500, there's 500,000 native uh, indigenous folks in these collections. There's countless, countless right. enslaved folks. There's, when I found out about the poor, they would just go to, to porpoise fields and, and, you know, these potter's fields, they call them now, but, and just dig them up. Uh, you know, in his book, Bone Rooms, he talks about, they were just random bones and corpses and skulls being sent to like the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian right. apparently right. holds the world's largest collection of illegal, illegally taken bones, you know, and it's just, you know, it's absolutely, but, but just for listeners to, to just even try to imagine this. And, you know, I, I reached out for the show too, too. And I want to give a big shout out to uh, Mike Africa Jr. Who's a relative of tree right. Africa. He actually 100%. spent years in that house. 100%. And he's got he's got a podcast called On a Move, and I listened uh, to it. Uh, you know, just to try to learn about this topic. He's incredible. Everybody needs to check him out. Yeah, hundred percent. And um, on one of his on his latest podcast about this, he has uh, the guy who's really uh, responsible for breaking this story. I know that we we plug Billy Penn. Um, Rightfully so, and deservingly yep. so. But apparently, this this uh, this Philadelphia community organizer named uh, Abdul Ali, he's the one who got this. Wow. He he somebody he was protesting the Morton collection, which is just uh, we can spend episodes just on the Morton collection. He was a white right. supremacist, obviously, and he dug up all these Chris. He got a he was out there protesting in front of the museum, the Morton collection. Dozens upon dozens of stolen skulls of people, right? Mm, mm. And 
someone inside the museum reached out to him and was like, I, I saw you outside. I can't believe this, but you're never going to believe this. I think that little girl's in here. And he's like, what? Wow. And he contacted Mike, Chris, yeah. Mike Africa Jr. One thing that sort of struck me when we were researching, and I think it was that Billy Penn article, was just like how the bones, the remains were being passed around between the institutions and no one would actually claim they had it because they didn't seem to care to even know like, whose remains they were, document um, where they were going. They didn't have or, those yellow envelopes with the little yeah, string. With like a tag on it. <laughs> right. Like I think, I think that even just speaks to the greater injustice, right? They, they didn't even seem to care. That's, that's a right, perfect right, point. Right. Because right. uh, you think like museums, you know, you, they, they have everything cataloged and tagged. And, and, and if there was some crazy justification that they could use these specimens or whatever you want to call it, that at least at the very least, they would, you know, know where the where they were, like who, what department had that. Like you would think that's ridiculous. You wouldn't think that they would do that for. I hate with animal bones. You wouldn't think that they would miscategorize. You know, uh, who has the chicken bones? Who has the dog bone? Like you know, what I mean, like they would have everything under lock and key. But you got these particular specimens being passed around with no knowledge or care. Who got them where they at, whatever, it doesn't matter. That's and one of the from from one of the only like two bombings in the history of the United States, Philadelphia and what was it, Tulsa, the Tulsa yeah, massacre. Right. Well, like this is like to have that and not even seem to care or have any respect. Yeah. Like not even a modicum of respect. Go ahead. And you said, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I just thought of this. Um you know, Rochette and I went an incredible uh, adventure one time we we had uh after hours access to uh the museum and natural history and part of the smithsonian uh, network in dc and we got in there and and we're seeing such incredible stuff and you know one of the things we saw we we held in our hand i mean joe joe wordy would probably love this story but it was petrified dinosaur dung now now on the note that oh, you just said, though, Rashad, right. you ready? That was in more secure and, and better stored than this black, this African-American young child. They kept it I'm in saying, a right. box. Apparently, they kept it in a box. It wasn't even in climate con- uh, you know, controlled room or anything like that. Passed around, yeah. like you said. So, and, and, you know, it speaks to also just, you know, we cover a lot of of issues about the atrocities uh, against African-American bodies when they're living. This is after death. They can't even give this girl, this poor little girl, the respect. I mean, it's just, it's, this is, it's why it's, and the the, the infuriating thing is that I think, um, you could probably keep going with the story because I think Chris, you probably read this, but I think there was another researcher who was trying to discredit the fact that those bones, those remains actually belong to the, to the it, Africa it, girl. Yeah. It became a, it became a sort of a hiding behind the desk thing, which I think it still sort of is. I know, I know I, I tried to stay up on top of the most recent stuff, but it, 
UPenn is saying, oh, they don't have it. Princeton has it. Princeton says, we don't know where it is. We don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that was somebody who didn't work here anymore. You know, you know, but, the, but the other infuriating thing about the story is that, and, and this is what uh, Abdul Ali uh, told uh, Mike Africa Jr. On, the po- on his podcast on a move, yeah. is that people there knew, people there knew since probably 85 that they had these girls' bones there that they were just passing around and that they were just props. They all, so many people knew, you know, and in preparation for this episode, I was going to have this whole thing where we're going to, we're going to go after Janet Mong, this anthropologist, and we're going to go after, and you know what? Shame, uh, the minimum I'm going to say is shame the hell on them. Shame on, on that anthropologist, shame on Princeton, shame on this guy who's apparently got him now at his house. This guy, man, I forget his first, his first name. Every single person in, in these departments of these museums need to yeah. i mean at the minimum they need to contact these families they need to be they need to be spending their own funds to get these bones back to to the ancestors this is beyond shameful is not even the word i mean how do you do this as a freaking human word up yeah man and thank you again as rashad said to bringing this to our attention you were on the story deep and heavy and none of this this literally yesterday I didn't know about any of this, except for the, the story breaking, uh, to know the depth of this, to, to hear from Professor Redmond. Uh, it's, again, on this show, it's so easy to turn on the news and get caught. We were talking before off, you know, on Slack earlier to get caught up in the distractions, right? And, and some of them are valid. You know, Chauvin trial, Liz mm-hmm. Cheney, all the things that are happening right now. These are important. Voting rights, you know, sometimes bubbles to the surface. Super important. The insidiousness of what's happening in our institutions. We, we talk about institutionalized racism, right? Well, this is an example of racism in an institution, Right. Depravity, uh, you the know, most anti- revered, the most revered institutions in the country, in the, in, the, in the world, maybe. Right. So when we say things like when we hear things like, you know, racism in America, you know, is nah, we're so much better. Tim Scott, you know, even, you know, Kamala Harris. Um, sure. There's such insidiousness to this stuff, which, again, if you're not tuned in. And this is one of the things we like to do here. And we pride ourselves in it because we, we, and you know, again, we're not the first democracy now had it. So great, but we're tuned in. We're bringing it to y'all the best way we know how. Uh, and that is through the work we do here. And of course on the podcast. So thank you gentlemen. And thank you again, Chris, for really, you know, pulling this one together. This was a hell of a, again, again hell huge, of a huge, the only props that, that are deserving are goes to uh, really, I mean, uh, you know, people like Redmond who are, who are trying to illuminate this, this in, in book form. And, yep. and I'm sure he's teaching this stuff. Then we've got, sure. again, we've got Mike Africa Jr. He's got a yep. podcast on a move. Check it out. And we've got people, people like Abdul Ali. Um, and again, we're going to share his Twitter and stuff. But this is, this, I, I is, I mean, this, this, is a, this is a journalist. Right. Just a community organizer. But he's also a writer. He just had a huge, huge piece. Uh, shining right. light and, and, and Africa is is a podcaster. Uh, my he, point, he has a book coming out too. So yeah, right. My point is that I do. Uh, you know, we've talked about this so many times that if you put a blanket statement over the media, if you say the media can't be trusted, the media is stupid, the media this and that, and the third, 
This was uncovered by media. They're, they're not mainstream media. They're not, but they're media. So be very careful when you decide to not look at independent sources of, of, of information, uh, independent, you know, smaller outlets, local outlets that are breaking these kind of stories uh, and, and, and giving you the truth that sometimes they get swept over, they get, you know, whitewashed, they get pushed to the side. Uh, this was a big, big story broken by a not a major uh, journalism outlet, but media nonetheless. So please understand that there's media out here doing it right. Yeah. I think that's important. Support independent media. And, and uh, you know, I know we're going long here. Maybe we'll skip the, the past. Um, but the, for the future, I just want to say on all these notes, I just want to. I just want to uh, resonate uh, the message that, again, Mike Africa Jr., who is a relative of these poor girls whose bones right. are freaking toys in some anthropologist's bag right now, probably. Um, and what he asks, what he begs is just to keep the pressure on, you know? Yes. And so, and yes. obviously, and I know you guys too, just so blessed we have this outlet, but to keep the pressure on, you know, these, these professors. And these institutions, these board members, these donors, you know, you think about it, people paid a hell of a lot of money, I'm sure, to attend yeah. that, to attend that online course. Oh, I'm sure. Right. And I'm sure that that department of that museum, I mean, the museum itself, how, you know, donors and fundraisers and, 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 you know, how much money gets brought into the philanthropy into these, into these things too, Right. Uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm sure it's yeah, beyond anything. Imagine. No, no figure we could come up with. Yeah. So just, you know. yeah. Like I had really something in the, uh, for the future aspect that Chris just said. Um, sure. I think next week, All I right. could be wrong. We could, we could double check this, but I think the city is actually commem not commemorating, but I think they are remembering the bombing in a way. Yeah, and I think there are going to be some local events. Okay. Yeah. 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 So great call. Really? Yeah. So certainly if you're in Philly and you want to make your voice heard, I'm sure that that's, there's an opportunity to do that. Uh, I mean, you don't have to be in Philly, I'm sure. Um, yeah, May 13th is the anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so I would just, yeah. Do, I mean, do what check I just those did. things out, write, write to these people, demand these people, you know, yep. accountability. It's 100%. Just, it's, it's incredible. Um, and, Thank you know, again. hashtag, you know, I saw a hashtag being used, uh, return, the bo return the remains. Yes. Bury the bones. Admit the truth. Yeah. And we made up that last one, but that's, oh. <laughs> that's, that's what needs to be. That's what needs to be done. Hashtag it's admit the truth. Official. Official. It covers it all. Official yeah. now. Yeah. All right. There it is. Uh, we appreciate the, the Chris filibuster. We love it. We're here for it. We back you up. We love you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, all right, that's about it. This has been This Week in Social Justice. I do want to plug one more thing before we get out of Dodge. Uh, this, of course, is an extension of the Newsbeat podcast. Uh, so if you're watching us on the video or on the replay, we are live with this show. I don't know. I gave you, I gave you, we gave you 15 tidbits of social justice news that if you turned on MSNBC, CNN, uh, even Democracy Now, if you turned on C PBS, if you turned on BBC, you might not have heard of half of these things today. The news bites, the main talk. We didn't even get into some of the stuff with voting rights uh, continuing to being under assault. We're following all of that very closely, and we'll probably talk about it more next week. Uh, but do follow us this week in social justice on our Facebook, on our YouTube, on our Twitch. Uh, but the Newsbeat podcast, if you can't catch us on the video tip, 
Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can get us on Spotify so you don't have to be a big podcast head and have a podcast app and a podcast book bag and a podcast bumper sticker. You could just have Spotify. You probably have Spotify. So find us on there. It's Newsbeat, two words, one love. And find us on Apple Podcasts if you have one of those apples. Uh, don't forget the Siri shortcut. I'm being pulled <laughs> over, which is important. And you could find out more about that. Uh, subscribe to us. Subscribe, subscribe. Uh, we're spreading the love. We're going to leave you with this. As I believe we are sipping on some beverages. I am sipping on a margarita. It is Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May. And uh, it is a celebration for a lot of people. Probably a little bit subdued because of pandemic and this whole thing that we've been going through. Uh, But we decided at Newsbeat that we like to celebrate Cinco de Mayo. We like to drink our margaritas and have some La Cerveza Mas Fina. But we also know kind of the history of Cinco de Mayo. And we think it's important that people do as well. So our current episode, if you have not heard it, is called Cinco de Mayo. What you didn't learn in school. And it's newest of our, we flipped it a little bit. We did something new. We did a thing. I hope you enjoy it. Let's hear a clip before we head out for the night. This is Cinco de Mayo. What you didn't learn in school. A little clip from the news group. To celebrate Cinco de Mayo is to recall a bloody and traumatic time in history, but also one in which small victories, as with the Battle of Puebla, would galvanize burgeoning Latino communities in California and elsewhere. As David E. Hayes Bautista writes in his book, El Cinco de Mayo, An American Tradition, quote, the stakes could not have been higher. Both the United States and Mexico were fighting to survive as nations. Now, by the time we're done, I think we'll all agree that there's nothing wrong about celebrating Cinco de Mayo, but it's critical that we understand its roots and the combined role all these events played in shaping Latinx life in the U.S. for decades. Unless we want more people like Mike Huckabee, who once tweeted, quote, For Cinco de Mayo, I will drink an entire jar of hot salsa and watch old Speedy Gonzalez cartoons and speak Spanish all day. Happy Cinco de Mayo! <laughs> you, sir, are an idiot and definitely not funny. So, let's talk about the spark that ignited Cinco de Mayo and why the holiday still resonates 160 years later. Find that on your podcast feeds, Cinco de Mayo, which you didn't learn in school. We break it down in only the way that we can. Uh, Check our links for it. Uh, Tell your friends to tell some friends. Check our socials, U.S. Newsbeat. I can feel very confident in celebrating Cinco de Mayo. I think we all should, mm-hmm. actually. Everyone in America, uh, it's an American holiday, uh, although albeit unofficial. There's a lot to celebrate in what happened, but it's it's really who we're celebrating that needs to be the focus. Uh, and it is not Mexican Independence Day, as I learned <laughs> repeatedly. Come on, you already knew that. Which I did, but which most people kind of think it is. And it's not a bad thing. It's just something that you probably weren't taught in school. In school. So we're bringing it to you. And I think we did it pretty well. So please do check it out. Uh, I was, uh, I didn't know all the details uh, as I never do, uh, as we never do, as we uh, research these things to bring it to you. The people, our friends, neighbors, supporters, and haters of Newsbeat and this week in social justice. Other than that, it's time to watch the Knicks. We got to go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go Knicks. Knicks tape all day. Chris, any parting words? 
Return the remains. Return Bring back the bones. Remains. I don't know. Hashtag. I lost them already. Return to bury the bones. <laughs> uh, if any, truth, I think. Yeah, if any of these issues touched you, please take action. We always look for not just to bring you the horrific details of everything that's happening in the world of injustice. Many of uh, them we are uh, honored and privileged and lucky enough to not have to face directly. Uh, but yep. uh, it is it behooves us to do what we can to shine the light on the lesser reported and lesser known things that are happening and encourage you that if you have any humanity in your in your bones to uh, find ways to take action, find ways to get involved with the organizations, uh, the people that have been fighting these fights as we bring them to you. So if you have any questions, concerns, uh, want to know more, uh, love what we do, hate what we do, want us to do something else, want us to look into something, please contact us. Again, our socials, US Newsbeat, or you can email us at newsbeat at moreycreative.com. That's newsbeat at Maury, M-O-R-E-Y creative.com and uh on that note shouts to Mori creative studios our parent family uh we appreciate you thanks to sage on the back end always helping us out thanks to jeff main uh john shim johnson salad the whole crew everybody who's uh, offered us some background support and uh and love and of course jed Mori, the ceo and uh uh cuddly grandfather of the group i don't know hmm. whatever shouts to you jed uh, shouts to Coleman on the check-in tonight. We appreciate you. We love you. Uh, and uh, Rashad, any last words for you, sir? Uh, let's go. 13 uh, out of 14. We got to keep the streak. Who are they playing tonight? Nuggets? Got the Nuggets. Got a, a big test. A big test. A tough, tough game. Tough game. Let's go. All right. Go New York. Go New York. Go. It's your man, Manny Faces, uh, representing Newsbeat this week of social justice uh, and Manny Faces Media. We love you. Peace. We'll be back next week. Uh, happy Cinco de Mayo.